0: Please remain standing as you're able. Before we join in the ancient confession of faith, the Shema, uh, a couple of things I did want to say to you first was thank you. Uh, So many of you in the sudden death of my brother um, two weeks ago tomorrow uh, extended prayer and uh, thoughts and condolences and and I appreciate I felt your prayers and appreciated uh, your support. The second thing is that the next sermon in the Jesus Way series will actually be Wednesday night at the Ash Wednesday service when we talk about Elijah, because next uh, Sunday morning here in the sanctuary, we're going to have a a real uh, interesting opportunity. Dr. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist uh, who founded Reasons to Believe, will be coming and and sharing with us uh, from a scientific point of view uh, the reality and the validity of our beliefs about uh, our God. Uh, Now, uh, would you join me, please, in the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had, and together, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God's word comes from 1 Samuel 24, 1 through 7, and then Psalm 32, verse 5. After Saul uh, was returning from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took with him 3,000 of able young men from all of Israel and went to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. There were sheepfolds there, and when Saul passed by, there was a cave. Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. His men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said, I will give to you your enemy into your hand to deal with as you wish. So David crept up unnoticed and cut a corner off of Saul's robe. After he had done so, David was grief-stricken for cutting a corner of Saul's robe He said to his men, God forbid that I should do such a thing to uh, my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, he sharply rebuked his men and did not let them attack Saul. So Saul left the cave and went his way. And from the psalm, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. We've talked about him before. He may be the greatest figure in the Old Testament. Sixty-six chapters of the Hebrew Bible are devoted to David. The Messiah is called his son, the Son of of David he's mentioned again in the book of Revelation. He is a poet, a lover, a musician, a warrior, a shepherd, a king. David is all of these things. And David was so impressive that even today, Israel's flag contains the star of David on it. And for centuries, the people of Israel were actually known as the house of David. David seemed so good that many people doubted that this was reality. They even uh, put forth a theory that the existence of David is probably a myth. But in 1998, near uh, the territory where the tribe of Dan would uh, occupy it, they found a little monument in the ground, a little marker where a neighboring country who had defeated Israel in a battle 200 years after David left evidence of their victory. And they said this, here we defeated the house of David. He was no myth. 200 years later, even surrounding countries are calling Israel after David. But on the other hand, David was not perfect either In Eugene Peterson's book, The Jesus Way, he has this wonderful sentence about David. He said, David was a labyrinth of ambiguities. I think what he meant is for all of his wonder and greatness, David also had the other side and had pain and struggle and error. David, of course, had the disastrous affair with Bathsheba and his attempt to cover it up. He actually had her husband murdered at the front lines of battle. David had such struggles with his inconsistent parenting that there were always issues in his family among his children that led to rape and murder and then finally to a revolt against David's own kingdom. And then there's David on his deathbed appearing very cool and calculating as he gives a list of Solomon of names of people who need to be knocked off. He wouldn't do it, but he would have Solomon do it. This is David. He's not perfect by any means. And that is a wonderful gift to us today. Or we might think that perfection was the main qualification to walk with God on the path of life and faithfulness. Or what we've come to call the Jesus way. But David was not perfect but what I want to share with you this morning is, even in the midst of his imperfection, I think there's something about David that shines through that gives us uh, some clues as how to walk this path of life. The scene is this: They're in the wilderness uh, near En-Gedi, uh, of Engedi, and that's, uh, Engedi is like an oasis in the middle of a desert area. Actually, as the crow flies, it's only 17 miles from Bethlehem, but it was a convenient hideout here in the middle of the desert. And David and his men are hiding there from Saul who wants to kill him. They're hiding in the back of a cave. Dave, uh, Saul is looking for him, decides to stop on this search and go relieve himself in a cave. And David's men and David are there and the men say to him, you know, David, here's your chance. This is, this is what God promised you. Go get him. So David does, but what he does is he sneaks up on Saul and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe and then slips back now many people have seen this as evidence of the magnanimity of david that he had a chance to kill saul and he didn't do it and even peterson comments on it's amazing because david was famous for killing goliath and so many hundreds of thousands of philistines that here he didn't kill and i agree with that that's true but there's more going on here Then meets our eyes when we begin to understand the significance of the corner of the robe. In the book of Numbers, the Jews were told, the males were told, uh, put tassels on the corners of your robes. And these tassels called tzitzit would indicate that you intend to obey God and keep all of God's commandments. In fact, after the time of Jesus, these tassels were woven together in different sorts of patterns that would even remind you of certain commandments and the total number of commandments, which was 613. But in Saul's day, they would indicate that you were trying to be obedient to God, which was a number one qualification for being a king. In Deuteronomy, it said a person shouldn't be a king unless they could write out their own copy of the law of God, their own copy of God's law, and carry it with them. They shouldn't be king unless they're obedient. But it also came to signify something else because in Hebrew the word for uh, corner and the word for uh, wings uh, are, are the same. And so the sense became that you also wore these tassels to indicate that you are being covered in the shadow of God's wings. So when David comes and sneaks up on Saul and cuts that corner... He's giving a very clear message to Saul. Two things. Number one, you're disobedient. You're not obeying God. You don't deserve to be king. You'll be cut off from being king. And then the second message is this. And God's hand of protection is being taken from you. You are no longer under the shadow of God's wing. Do you think Saul got the message? When they got back together a little while later and David waved the corner at Saul and said, Hey, Saul, I've got this. Saul says to David, now I know you'll be the king because he knows he's no longer going to be protected. He knows that his disobedience has been discovered. But to me, here's the beautiful part of the story. After it happens, we're told David is conscience stricken. David all of a sudden is hit with the idea, I don't have the right to do this. I don't have the right to declare that Saul, who's been made king by God, is no longer obedient. That's not my call. I don't have the right to say that God is no longer under, I mean, is protecting Saul and he's no longer under God's protection. I don't have the right to do this. And David learns a profound lesson that it's not his job to declare who's obedient and who's disobedient, who's protected and who's not protected, who's in bounds and who's out of bounds. And he's grief stricken about that. What a wonderful teaching for those of us walking this way. Because sometimes we're less attentive to walking the way of God and more attentive to pointing out those who aren't walking the way and the ways in which they're not walking it. And sometimes the church has made it its business to comment on people outside the path that the church is walking rather than to try to live and walk the path the church is called to walk. Sometimes our energy has been spent disqualifying people rather than trying to qualify as many as possible and bring them in what a profound lesson for us today jesus knew this lesson jesus told a parable about a farmer that had sown his seed but an enemy had scattered uh uh, seeds of weeds in the midst of the crop and so the servant says the weeds began to grow up with the wheat wanted to pull the weeds and the, the the master said don't do it yet you might end up pulling wheat along with the weeds just wait Let it grow, and at the harvest, we'll take care of it. Jesus was telling them, you leave those disqualification discussions to God, and God will handle it at the right time. It's not your job. A wonderful lesson for me and for the church, but an even more profound lesson for David, for you see what would happen in just a very short time after this, is David himself would stray widely from the path of God. And David would sin with Bathsheba and the murder to cover up that sin, would raise his children in ways that would actually cause the kingdom to go in revolt. And David surely at this moment must have been tempted to declare himself disqualified. David must have been tempted to say, I'm no longer under protection. God can no longer love me. I can no longer walk this path. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. But people I know do it all the time. A friend of mine years ago went to a church college. And very devout people went to that college, the freshman class. He said always on the very first weekend showed up dressed early for church on Sunday morning and made their way to church. And then as the Saturday nights got a little longer and a little wilder for them, fewer and fewer of them showed up dressed for church on Sunday And then he said a most interesting phenomenon occurred by the second semester. Those people who had dressed for church so eagerly the first couple of weekends now declared they didn't think they believed in God anyway. They had slipped enough that they had decided to just go ahead and disqualify themselves. That was never how God intended it to be for those of us walking this path. I'm reminded the story of a group of holy monks who lived on the top of a mountain. And everyone knew of, of their holiness and everyone knew of their power and their witness. And so one guy climbs to the top, as many did, to visit with them. And his question one day to one of the monks was this, what do you holy people do up here on this mountain? And the monk's response was this, we fall down and we get up. We fall down and we get up. A righteous man, says the scriptures, will fall down and get up seven times. Seven, of course, being a symbolic number, meaning just as often as you fall, what's righteous about you is not that you uh, fall. What's righteous is that you get up after you fall. And David, to God's credit and David's credit, will get up. There are two things that I take from this lesson at Engedi this morning that I wanted to pass on you, to you. The first is this. David, I believe, is not an example to us because of his perfection. I believe David is exemplary for us because of his passion. One thing about David is he loved God and loved God deeply. And it didn't keep him sometimes from messing up. But it never dampened his love for God. He said, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When the ark was recovered to the Philistines and marched back into Israel, David danced before it almost half naked, embarrassing his family. And his officers with his passionate worship of God. He was just as passionate about other people. Saul and Jonathan had a relative who, was, uh, who had been maimed, being dropped as a, uh, as a small child. David found out about him. And after the death of Saul and Jonathan, David said, let me take this boy into my house and he will always eat at my table. David loved people and loved families and loved them completely. As one person said about David, when David loved you, you knew you were loved. It was as his passion, not as perfection, that makes him an example for us. And the second thing is this. When it comes to the matter of sin, and it will because we all sin, it is much better to confess sin than to obsess over sin. It's much better as David, no matter how grievous the sin, to take it to God, to confess it, and to let God deal with it and forgive us than it is to keep beating ourselves up over the sin. I was reading not too long ago about uh, President James Garfield, uh, one of the presidents uh, after Lincoln, who uh, was uh, brought down by an assassin's bullet in the summer of 1881. But what they found out is that really when he died a few months later it wasn't the bullet that had killed him from the assassin. It was the probing of the wound both by physicians and non-physicians as they dug around with unsterilized hands and unsterilized instruments looking for the bullet. He died they said from infection. Sometimes our lives die when when we Probe our sin and keep picking at our sin and keep going back to our sin rather than taking it and offering it before God uh, to forgive us and to release us. One thing about David is he knew sin, but he also knew forgiveness. And he lived in that forgiveness. John Claypool tells a story about a man that made a very grievous mistake. And the mistake ruined the man's life, he could never get past it. And Claypool made this observation some years ago. We must get to the point in life where we don't say, if only, if only I hadn't done this, or if only I had done this. And instead we get to the point in life where we say, next time, next time I won't do that. Or next time I will do this. David knew there was always a next time, and he never, no matter how grievous the error, got stuck in if only. There's a freedom for life and living that comes from confession. I told you the story a number of times before. It's one of my favorite. When Peter the Great takes power, one of the first things he does is he visits a prison and all the prisoners are recognizing the new monarch, come up to him and tell him that they don't belong in there, that they haven't done anything wrong and they've been framed and they need to get. Uh, he needs to get them out of there. And he comes to one man and he said, so what are you in here for? And the man said, I beat a man and robbed him and... I deserve to be here. At which point, Peter the Great called for the warden of the prison. And he said, I want you to release this scoundrel immediately, lest he defile all these, in, these pure and innocent people who are here in the prison. And the man was released. There's a freedom and release that comes with confession that doesn't come from perfection. Perfection. I know we talk a lot in this church, and we'll keep talking about being like Jesus. And I think we should. But when we're talking about being like Jesus, we're not talking about being perfect. We're talking about the one thing that Jesus did better than any of his time. He knew himself to be loved completely by the Father. He lived in that love deeply and shared it widely. That's what it takes to walk the path of God. Not to be perfect, but to be passionate because you've been loved and forgiven.